You are listening to KDRTLP 95.7 here in Davis, California. My name is Lois Richter, and my program is called That's Life. Now, if you've heard the show before, if you know me, you know that, well, I have a reputation for wandering around, meeting people, and asking them if they want to be in my show. I do that all the time. And so we get lots of folks just off the street here in Davis. Well, this time, ha! I had to track her down. She's not in Davis. My guest today is named Sarah. I think the last name is Jolina, but I'm not 100% sure. How do you pronounce it, Sarah? Sarah Jolina Walcott. All right. And I, I was interested in meeting Sarah because she is going to be doing a presentation at Ben Lomond Quaker Center. And it sounded like an interesting program, but I'm not going to be free that weekend, so I can't go. So I thought, well, I'll just, I'll call and talk to her and you know, maybe she'll be on the show. And she said, yes. So Sarah, <laughs> would you tell us what the program is, what the name of the program is that's coming up, when it is? I know Ben Lomond Quaker Center is open to the public. So if people wanted to go, they could, they could go and sign up. But when is it and what is it? Yeah, so it's at the end of September um, on a full moon weekend, and in, it's in Ben Lomond Quaker Center in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and um, it's called If Quakers Were Witches, um, and it's kind of geared towards the Quaker community, but, you know, these programs um, generally are open for for, for, like, for like-minded friends, as we often say. Mm-hmm. Are you a Quaker yourself? I grew up in a Quaker family, um, and there are ways in which I am so deeply Quaker that I can't <laughs> not be Quaker. I kind of tried to be other faith traditions, other points in time, um, and there's a part of me that's very, very deeply Quaker. Um, but that said, I am, I'm only very loosely a part of Strawberry Creek Monthly Meeting. Um, I'm what they call a scattered berry. Um, and I live in the Hudson Valley and uh, the traditional homelands of the Mohican Mohican people in upstate New York, about two hours north of New York City. Um, and I have a very deep, like, earth practice or honoring earth practice as part of my spiritual practice. At this point, I think I consider myself more of a mystic than, I mean, Quakers are a myst- is a mystical tradition, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, my listening, if you would, for the Holy Spirit uh, has is broader than what a lot of Quakers traditionally think of themselves as doing. Um, but I've always been interested in these. I've I, I've always had a deep sense of connection to to the divine feminine, um, and that has never. So I've always been like curious and interested in these particular connections, and this feels like the time has come to offer this particular workshop. And just so the listeners know, Strawberry mm-hmm. Creek is not in New York. Strawberry no, not. is out here in California over by Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I grew up in the East Bay area and my mom is out, lives there still. And I visit the California um, and the East Bay area very frequently. Mm-hmm. When you moved, were you an adult or did you go to school or how did you get from here to there? Uh, that's a bit of a story (laughs) we got an hour let's go for it (laughs) um i i i went to college um you know i i 
back east here. Um, I went to college at Haverford College, which is a relatively small Quaker college um, outside of Philadelphia. Um, and I went back to California. I actually worked at Ben Lomond Quaker Center right after college. Um, I was there sort of, um, they're kind of in, they have a, they used to have a year long internship program, which I had the pleasure of, of doing, which was amazing experience of spending, you know, that first year after college, uh, really in service to my community, um, living on 80 acres of redwood trees, being in service to, to the land, learning a lot about the land, um, and about that ecosystem in California. And, um, and, and really deepening my own spiritual practice during that time and getting to know a lot of the great elders and, uh, teachers in the, in the wider West Coast Quaker community who would kind of pass through Quaker Center at that time. It was a very, very formative period for me, even though it was relatively short. It was a period that kind of has stayed with me ever since then. So, you know, kudos to everyone who offers those types of, um, like spiritual deepening programs for young people that is really important uh, where you get to work with your hands and your heart and your feet. And um, after that kind of like a series of different things, I was trying to find, find my way. I had a strong calling to ministry, which made no sense to me as a Quaker because we don't have formal ministers. Um, and I was trying to get into international sustainable development. Uh, and eventually I, I ended up, eventually kind of traveling and working internationally. And I went to do my graduate work at the Institute of Development Studies in England. And I lived in England for several years doing uh, research, social science research around climate change and adaptation to climate change in different parts of the world, led a 33 country project um, on climate change adaptation and on responses to the global economic crises at that time. Um, and that led me eventually, and I knew, I knew, because I was, I was working with great people, and I knew that there was something that we were really missing in how we were approaching addressing climate change. I firmly believe that climate, at that time, that climate change was a spiritual crisis. And I tried to bring religious and spiritual dimensions into our work as a social science institution. Um, and I made some progress. Um, and like today is actually much more common for religious and spiritual organizations to be a part of the wider international communities conversation about climate change. But that time it was, it was kind of new and the opportunity opened up. But I, I was, I was, I knew even in that space, I felt like we were really, really missing some very profound things. Um, and I kind of suspected that I was not going to find what I was looking for based in the West. I was not going to, based in Europe or America. What um, years were those? You know, I'm so bad at years. Um, I'm, must, I'm trying to place the, because the conversation yeah, has changed so much. It has. It's changed a lot in the last, I mean, this was over a decade ago. Okay. Um, so it must have been like 2000, I don't know. 12, maybe. I mean, the financial crisis was 2008. Mm -hmm. And that was like when I was sort of doing my, my initial work in England. Okay. And that gives me a sense of, of time. Yeah. Right. So I got my, I got my master's there in 2008 and continued working. Um, 
And anyway, so that led, I got a chance to do a project for the World Bank um, on val- a values-based analysis um, of an integrated water management project. Um, and it took me to Tamil, to Chennai and Tamil Nadu in India. And when I was there, I was really struck by the group of people who I kind of somewhat accidentally got put with. I mean, it wasn't accidentally, but I didn't understand like the larger networks, but um, I was really impressed with how they were thinking and the solutions that they were coming up with and the ways in which they were approaching the problems. And so I asked when I, when I got back to England, I asked my boss if I could uh, get another position. And he did. He actually got me a, a different, totally different um, pos- uh, little small job um, in South India again. Um, the center is working with health health systems, and um, and I kind of moved to an organic farm and started work. I uh, was working on the farm in the morning and uh, working in the the office and doing this research project in the afternoon, and complete and somewhere in that process. I um, was given the opportunity to meet with um, uh, some friends who took me to meet with some delete communities and they told me their stories and I realized that they had not experienced their stories being heard. And so I sang their, I just kind of started singing to them. I started singing their stories back to them in song. Like I would take this story they told me and I turned it into a song. And it was just this profound experience of human understanding in that moment. And so I just started singing all over India and people would invite me to different places and I traveled around India singing. And it was in that process of singing that I began to realize that song and music and dance and culture is what that is actually where sustainability lives. That is where regenerative societies live. They live in the, the culture, the spirit lives in the song and the dance and the ritual. And in oral societies that is passed down, you know, the, the dances is so critical for how knowledge is transmitted across generations. And it, none of this is things that we talk about in sustainable development. Um, and I realized that like there was a way of working with deep cultural tradition that could help us move into a more sustainable society. And we tend to call that in the West, we call talk about that as religion and spirituality. It is not the correct term. Um, and neither is culture for that matter, but it's the closest that we have. Um, and so I, I, that led me to go to, to, I went to union. I wanted to do that work. I like I was completely hooked once I started realizing that I could I also was not a very good singer and I had no no future career as a singer. It was very clear to me. I knew that. That was like it was a really amazing experience, but I had no no career as a musician. Um I didn't really want to do that. I, I was I did it enough to know that was not my pathway. Um and um and I found this sort of amazing amazing like insight i guess or this realization this understanding and during all that time i was having very profound spiritual experiences with the divine feminine um in different parts of india which was wasn't officially why i was there um i wasn't trying to go on some 
spiritual retreat. I was quite content with my own spiritual practice. Uh, but I began to like my ear, my listening widened and I began to hear the voices of the different goddesses in India more, more, more personally in my own life. And they were very helpful with a lot of things I was struggling with at that time. And, um, so I, I knew I wanted to professionally go into this and my kind of work in India was, I, I knew it was kind of coming to a, a pause. And, uh, so I went to, which I think everyone except even me thought it was a bit of a jump. I went to Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. So I actually came to New York originally from India. <laughs> um, and while here, while in this, while in New York and studying in seminary, which for those of you who know much about Quakers, you know that Quakers don't tend to go to seminary unless they want to become chaplains. And I had no interest in becoming a chaplain. But I knew that somewhere in, I believe that somewhere in the Western religious tradition, we also would have um, the same capacity to regenerate ourselves through music and song and through listening to the spirit. Um, and I knew that the, the deep crisis that we were in um, was not going to be addressed by technology and policy alone, that these deeper cultural and spiritual dynamics, and those had to be what I now think of as enchanting, like literally to re-enchant, to chant over, to chant with the great song of all of creation. Um, and then while I was in seminary, I sort of had two, I mean, many, many profound realizations and many rich learnings. And it was a very, very, um, you know, rich, rich experience, but like these two particular pieces of, of one that, um, I was very clear. I was very clearly called by the divine feminine. I was very clearly part and I could see and I had a mystical experience where I sort of experienced part of my, a witchy, I call it a witchy lineage. Um, that was much older than my own, my kind of parents or grandparents or great grandparents. Like it went back for many, many generations. Um, and which was, you know, who, I think I had always known that, but apparently I needed to go to seminary to really own it, <laughs> which is a little ironic. Um, but then I went to, um, and the other kind of profound thing that happened was a conversation. I was, um, working for the Center for Earth Ethics, which was a, you know, religious environmental group at Union. And, um, they were hosting a climate justice conference and I was hanging out with, uh, and there was many indigenous peoples from New York, upstate New York, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and Indian Law Alliance. Um, and I was asking about, you know, what do you need help in or how can we support you? It was a question I had asked to indigenous communities in many different parts of the world before. And the answer they gave me was an answer I had never heard before. Because they said, we want to rescind doctrine of discovery. Um, and I thought to myself, what does the doctrine of discovery have to do with climate change? What is the doctrine that, of discovery? Yeah. So the doctrine of discovery is like a set of paper bulls written in the 15, 1400s, um, written by the popes of, of, of the, the Catholic church at that time. At that, that was before the Protestant revolution. So in most of Europe was more or less Catholic and it gives permission for what becomes the beginnings of slavery. Um, uh, and the destructions of the Americas 
um, and what we now call the beginnings of colonization. And so this sort of series of people bowls becomes this sort of pivotal, initially religious and subsequently legal, economic, political um, documents that become the sort of justification and the moral argument, if you would, for what becomes like, you know, centuries of European colonization, including the enslavement of many different peoples and, and the destruction of many different ecologies um, around the, and many different plants and animals around the world. And I realized I could see how I, I sort of retraced the histories of climate change into that moment. Um, and, and then I started kind of giving short workshops on it just here and there, just a little bit. And actually the workshops were on spiritual development work. And I would mention these histories and no one knew, no one had any clue. And I realized that there was a tremendous need to share the history that I was learning um, and to do so from a spiritual framework. It's not from a place of shame, not from a place of, um, you know, anger, but as part of what it means to come into greater truthfulness and to greater wholeness with ourselves and with one another. So that led me to start this sort of eco-theology, um, small little company, uh, like international learning community, um, Sequoia Samanvaya. Um, my friends in India gifted me the name Samanvaya, which means harmony. And Sequoia refers to the great giant um, trees in California, which I was very, feel very close to. And I try to make an annual pilgrimage to, to visit with them. And so I, I, Sequoia Samanvaya has come to mean coming into harmony with ancient living wisdom. And so that kind of led me to do the, a lot of the online teaching and, uh, speaking, um, that I, and some now consulting that I do today. Um, and at the same, and at the same time, I was cult, I was big cultivating many of the people who were coming to me and coming into the courses were you know, at that time, I think I used terms like eco-spirituality or regenerative spiritualities, um, which coming, I come, you know, coming from this sort of Quaker interfaith background, I saw as a, as something that was not stuff that was, could, could include any religious community. Um, and as I did so, I think I was, I was engaging a little bit less with Quakerism at that time and doing more rituals and more and hosting groups of people and doing a lot of circles with, and working with groups of people in magical ways and creating different types of magic together and seeing the history, the work of working with history differently as a particular type of shifting consciousness. You know, of course, Starhawk always defines magic as the art of shifting consciousness and, um, so there's this sort of came this moment when it quite recently, and I'd had many Quaker friends kind of tell me that they, they were kind of like secretly druids or witches or in some other way. Um, and then of course, when I'm teaching people the histories, what happens is they want to know who were their ancestors before they were colonizers, especially if I'm working with people of European descent and they, they're looking for, people are looking for 
that part of their religious and spiritual ancestry, um, which was bound to the earth and in love with the earth as much as they are in hopes that those ancestors could help them now at a time when the earth is in, is in so much pain and suffering. And we seem to be so poorly adept at listening to her today. Um, and so that led me to, to, uh, kind of begin to ask this question about Quaker, like, you know, to think differently, um, around Quakerism and, and witchiness. Um, and, and, um, the folks at Ben Loman were quite happy to have me offer a workshop on it, which has been quite surprisingly taking, it's being taken up quite well. Like, I mean, in the sense of people really are curious about this topic and they're curious about, um, how these intersections work. And they, I think that I'm hit, I seem to be hitting something that people have is this speaking to people. Um, in some ways right now. One of the good things I think about Quakerism is that you don't have to be, you don't have to give up the rest of yourself in order to become a Quaker. And Mm -hmm. so being a witch and a Quaker, that works. Being a Buddhist and a Quaker, that works, at least from the Quaker side. Now, Mm -hmm. maybe not from the other religion side, you know, you have to work about that. But, but yeah, it's, uh, I can see where that is a, a very, easy thing for Quakers to do is to expand their knowledge and their situation to include other religions or other aspects of spirituality. And I, you know, I grew up in a, in a Quaker meeting where there was many people, people, um, both men and women who I think saw themselves as uh, in the rough category of, of paganish or witchiness or, um, earth honoring. Um, and like, I never saw any contradiction, right. You know, and it wasn't really until later that I realized how much for so many people, there is uh, this sort of inherent, there is a contradiction between Christianity and, 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 and paganism, which historically I think is, is more complex than we often realize. Um, and has far more to do with how the church has presented itself than I think what, what Jesus has said or, or what, um, and certainly far more, comp- far more that, that the division, that the, that divisive line was not put up by the indigenous peoples of Europe or the indigenous peoples of any other, um, country. And, and that, that line exists because of how people define Christian and Christianity. And there's a whole, there's a whole wide range of ways that different people speak about that. Mm-hmm. And I, I am, you know, I'm over 70 years old and I've, I've been around a while. I've seen a bunch of stuff and I have found that the definition of terms has changed incredibly during my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so what does it mean to be Christian? When mm-hmm. I was a kid, if someone said, you know, act like a Christian, I knew what that meant. I knew mm-hmm. that meant to be honest and honorable and treat people well. Mm-hmm. And and that isn't always what people mean when they use that word. Mm-hmm. And over the years, depending on who's using which words, words can change incredibly. Mm-hmm. What do mm-hmm. you call... So when I was in college in the 70s, and I was looking for a, a religious home, and I was 
I was a college student. I was reading a lot. And so I was reading various books about this, that, and the other. And I came across some that talked about variously the old religion or Wiccan mm. or some some ambivalent term that I, you know, I don't know what it was. But witchcraft, all of those terms... And I was really in love with what I was reading. I was thinking, mm -hmm. this is great. I mean, people who are honoring each other, who are taking care of the earth, who are, you know, doing all these really good things. Well, I couldn't find a coven. So mm -hmm. I ended up, I found a, a Quaker meeting here in Davis. And my goodness, they were honoring things and taking care of people. And it was like, hmm, okay, well, and the more I, I, hung around the Quakers, the more I went, oh, this feels good. This feels like a home. I think I'll stay. But that can happen in whatever community you end up in if you find a community that matches your, I guess, internal beliefs. Maybe that's the way to put it. So what do you mm -hmm. call the old religion these days? Mm. Um. I'm, I just, you? I just, I, I know I do. And I just, I think about this a great deal because words matter. And as you say, the definitions change and they are many definitions at any one time for any one thing. Um, I think it's important to, to recognize that there's definitely cultures and groups out there today um, who in kind of correctly in their own lineages, when they hear the word, witch, they think of a very negative um uh, a, a person who is actively trying to do um, malintention, like bad intention things towards right. others or crops and things. And I, and I mean, a, just a, like, a Christian witch, a, a witch <laughs> defined as a negative by the Christian church. But but not only not only within Christian spaces, like there's yeah. also within some native communities and some mm -hmm. like even pre-Christian native communities and in African, some African societies as well, there's, there's a concept of which, which is a very negative concept. And that was true before Christianity got there. So it's important to recognize that there is a use of this word, which is not the way I'm trying to use it right now. And certainly not the way I'm trying to use it for myself. And I have no interest. And I don't particularly want to work with anyone who has any interest in that kind of, um, purposeful use of dark powers for negative and, and ill attentions. Mm -hmm. um, so just to kind of say that quickly, <laughs> because, and it's, and it like, it's, and it's not true because I've seen people make this mistake of saying, Oh, but that's just like what the Christian says. Like, no, there are some cultures who it's not mm -hmm. just Christianity that has that concept. And there's um, lots of different names for that negative. Mm -hmm. I mean, in different languages, the word isn't which. Right. It might be there are other else. words. Yeah. But there is a word. But there's that, that idea. There is that idea. There is that role. There is that person who has a very negative and bad intention and yeah. will use their will and all of their power mm -hmm. for like, you know, for ill. Um, so just to recognize that I think that is a role that many societies have. Um, that's not what I'm trying to, you know, but, refer but when to here. A witch says witch. Like I have some friends who, mm -hmm. who yeah. say they say witch or they say Wiccan mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what they're mm -hmm. talking about is, um, in having personal power used responsibly, having mm -hmm. a um, 
a connection to the world, the planet, the critters, the people, whatever, and and that that connection is a positive energy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I when I when I teach teach and think about this, I for myself and for people I'm working with, I think about you know inviting people to go into that web of life that they may experience and that to rec you know to kind of focus on the horizontal nature of that web of life in which you are connected to all living beings mm-hmm. and all living beings past present and future are connected to you mm-hmm. um, and it's internal and it's external and some people can palpably feel the web and some people kind of just imagine it kind of depends upon what your gifts are um and for some people, there's colors, for some people, there's sounds, but there's that for many people, there's some sort of palpable sensation or visualization they can kind of drop into. And, and then it's like, and then learning how to first be in it, which requires a lot of observation and witnessing and patience and listening. Um, but also to see how you're impacting it, uh, and to work with it, to weave that web, to, to work with to consciously because you're doing you are you are working with it whether or not you're being conscious of it so to consciously work with that um and to to work with that whatever your particular gifts are to for the betterment of all beings um and and sometimes we don't know what the betterment of all beings is um so we that um requires a certain uh humility um and so sometimes people like to think of the witchiness as that, uh, the capacity to, to really, to both bring things into being, which sometimes I think it's kind of lost in a lot of the manifestation conversation. Um, but the recognition that your will and your thoughts and your body and your movements matter. And also to be led by, for me, it's also that, and this is also a very Quaker thought to let myself listen to and be led by that internal guide and that internal spirit. Um, and that there's, there's rituals and there's practices to do that. There's the, the animals and the other creatures are listening to us. Um, and, um, and there is being, we are being listened to and we are listening to others. And so we can engage like powerfully and purposefully and intentionally, um, and, the, and we can trust that we are being carried by a web of life and by an ocean of support that is much greater um, than we are ourselves in our, in our small human form. And there's a whole set of, you know, I think there's like a whole set of different artistic and musical um, gifts that some, that different people have in association with that. Um, but the, and then, so different pagan traditions will have different, you know, some people have very particular, uh, initiations and some people don't. I'm not really part of that myself. Um, I don't, uh, when I look at pre-Christian traditions in Europe, which I have been doing much more of, and I've been kind of currently teaching a course on the transition to Christianity, um, I'm think, talking a lot about the loss of indigenous European traditions. Um, and I'm doing that. I'm following a sort of particular set of scholars who are talking about pre-Christian cultures as indigenous European cultures in part because the, if you say pre-Christian, you're, you're kind of emphasizing Christianity <laughs> as a, def, as a defining term. Um, 
And yet that's an accurate way in in Europe to talk about things because for most places there was a distinct difference when Christianity was uh, became common. Right, but it still emphasizes the Christian perspective mm-hmm. versus emphasizing the people's perspective of their own right, you know, regardless of, of Christianity. And so like that there was, you know, the thousand years process of conversion from I mean it took a thousand years really um to for Europe to be converted to Christianity. It was a very in some ways slow, in some ways fast process. And sometimes scary and and terrifying and filled with violence and sometimes very peaceful and I think filled with what we think of today as sort of honest conversion. Um, and it's and it went it, it, it was uneven. It was there, very uneven. There were places where the conversion happened quickly and there were places mm-hmm. where it they weren't touched for hundreds of years. Mhm mhm mhm. And those the patterns of conversion and the patterns of of colonization of Europe were Europeans subsequently replicated those patterns in other parts of the world. And so the patterns of missionizing the rest of the world that Europeans did um, was, was in many ways in that, like they were kind of doing what to others, what had been done to them on some level, not completely. There were some differences, but, but kind of, and they were, they were continuing forward the Christianization of the world that i mean that for a lot of the the conquerors that was their goal absolutely yeah. yes it was a very critical part of their goal yeah. and and it ha- and it continues into you know the entire process of the colonization of the americas which includes you know everything from um what we now think of as manifest destiny to the indian boarding schools which you know quakers also partook in and many other aspects of the continued destruction of native religious pathways, um, which has only recently kind of been able to be revitalized with the um, passage of the uh, um, Indian Religious Freedom Act in the 1970s. So like, you know, there's just been this, now we're in this period today where there's just this tremendous revitalization of indigenous knowledge, of traditional ecological knowledge, of indigenous religious practices, and where people of European descent um, are also be looking to see how they can revive what what can what can we also revitalize in our practices and what can we hear from our far away and long distance ancestors to help us live better on this earth today. I don't know if you are aware of it, but when the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened, mm. there were a number of people in various Quaker meetings who felt an urge to do something. And there was a woman in our meeting in Davis, her name is Julie Harlow, and she mm. had been involved in getting started the the um, the Quaker connection to people in Russia when the Soviet Union still existed. And so mm. Friends House Moscow, is she, she's been connected to that for a long time. And she just felt called to have a meeting for worship to pray for peace. And so she did that. She announced it. She said, spread the word. Here's where it is. It'll be on Zoom at, at this time. It'll happen every day. And anybody who wants to come. And mm-hmm. so since then, there has been a daily 
Quaker meeting for worship to pray for peace. Started out as focused on Ukraine, but you know, the peace is needed all over. And so uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's broadened a little bit. I have met a number of people from around the world because there are people there from all over. And one woman is from Latvia. Now, I don't know mm-hmm. if you're familiar with Latvia, but it turns out that the people of Latvia who only recently had a nation by that name mm-hmm. uh, had their own religion, culture, tradition, mm-hmm. however you want to describe it. And it's been fascinating to talk to her. Mm-hmm. I think you and she would have wonderful conversations at mm-hmm. um, some point. I want to invite anyone who is interested and all of my listeners if you would like to come to a Quaker meeting for worship and pray for peace, it's a silent meeting. It happens on 9 a.m. Pacific time every single day. And um, everyone's welcome. So contact mm-hmm. me if you want more information about how to get there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's sort of a little digression there. Um, we need prayers for peace. Yeah. Yeah. And praying is an interesting idea and it means different things to different people. But mm-hmm. from what you're talking about, to, to me, praying is putting out the energy into that network, not to try and do a specific thing, but to um, make wishes and goodwill and positive energy, mm. uh, and to, which hopefully will strengthen what needs strengthening and and you know Mm. that sort of thing and to just to just feel it to just feel it to just feel your connection to it you know to just be aware Mm -hmm. that you are not alone yep to be aware of the deep love that is with us that is holding us that is coming at us from all beings all the time um and it's in you know it's from the stars to ourselves right there is this vibration of love and I think, and, and that doesn't, you know, there's shadow and there's, there's ugliness and there's stuff to deal with. You know, we all have shadow work, I think is an important part of any, 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 any kind of authentic spiritual path. You're doing some type of shadow work. Um, you're, and you're working with suffering on some level, uh, like, and you're working with the grittiness and the, the soil and the, the, hopefully you're working with the stuff of life. Um, but yeah, but to be able to lean into that deep, that inherent um, web of life and to feel it and to know that you are held within and by it and around it and there's a circle of hope around you at all times um, and to feel the, the presence of, of uh, and there's many ways of the holy. And it's like, I, I don't particularly... I have tremendous respect for all of my pe- my people who only want to define themselves as pagan. Um, but, you know, I've had profound experiences with Jesus and, and wonderful experiences with, with the Virgin Mary and in her many different forms. And I don't, you know, like I, 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 I don't reject the, the stories of Jesus or Christ at all. I, um, and I do not, I have no interest in the Nicene Creed. I mean, I think that's done, I've seen that done tremendous damage, but that is not just, you know, like I can, I can live in a world with a lot of both and, 
<laughs> you know, and I can live in a world with a lot of spiritual beings and a lot of, I, you know, animism in some ways is, I'm noticing for a lot of people, animus is, animism as a way of talking about it and animist tradition um, and, the, and the deepening into an animist worldview. For many people, that's like giving some language around that uh, is, is really helpful. And that's been, it's been cool to kind of see, to see that building um as a term and you know certainly that sense that we are all a living and part of a living being of this earth um in this cosmosphere yes i think yeah go ahead i think one of the (laughs) one of the core beliefs that i have is Mm. that we all observe and know and feel and however differently from each other and Mm -hmm. when when we once had a wonderful um quaker dialogue at our meeting asking uh how do you envision god if you do and Mm -hmm. went around the room and each one were talking about the different things and coming away from that and and hearing all these different ways that people talked about god i i came to the conclusion that God, divine spirit, light, whatever it is you're calling it, is an elephant, and we're all blind. You know that story mm-hmm. of the elephant yep. and the blind men, and, and, and everyone touched a different part of the elephant. Oh, it's a fan. No, it's a pillar. No, it's a sword. Well, mm. it's like, it's, I think it's like that for us with our, with our various religions. Which part of, of the divine has, have you connected with and that mm-hmm. will lend itself to what words you use and how you describe something. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I think, I think it's all the same thing. We're just pretty blind. Mm. Yeah. When I, um, we, we, we are so, human beings are so small, you know, we're just, it's like we're so small and we, we tend to think of ourselves as so big. And, um, yes, we have our, our actions have huge influence on the rest of the biosphere. Um, and yes, we can cover up a, you know, we can cover up an anthill with a, with a, with cement, but oh my goodness, like we can't make dirt. Mm-hmm. We cannot do what a worm can do, you know, like, we cannot do what the soil can do. We cannot do what a seed can do. We can't just like bring forth grass and uh, plants. We can't do what a tree can do. Like we are, we are just the the latest rendition in, in this long strew of ancestors. We are not the best. We are just one amongst many. And we are, you know, we owe to everything that's come before us, our life and our breath. And um, it's such a, you know, to be part of this, of this, of this kin, of this circle of kinship, um, is such a tremendous, like, honor, you know, to, to be part of this at all. And I don't think we can possibly, how could we possibly understand God? Or we get maybe glimpses of different facets. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, I think any, I, I, you know, any, any mystical tradition and almost, you know, any powerful, 
I don't. I have yet to to hear of a of a of a teacher of a spiritual teacher who who feels that they know all of God. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like they all we all talk to this. We all talk to the ineffability of it and the impost theology is you know is my my discipline of theology is a study of how do you talk about God and of course the answer is always you can't. Well, you you can talk about God, but well, you it's can, not but the you entirety. Can't get there, you can never like you yeah. can. You, you're yeah. just pointing. You're just pointing to. You're just gesturing wildly and dancing badly. <laughs> you know, like you just it's just variations of sometimes wordplay and sometimes you know like just crazy dances in the moonlight because it is so beautiful and it's so impossible and we somehow get to be a part of the mess of it. You know, it's and, such a... and yet, I think it's important that people do put words to their mm. their feelings, their impressions, their whatever. I mean, like in my in my own perspective, when I'm in meeting for worship, I'm listening, and that's mm-hmm. that's what I mm-hmm. that's how I think of it is mm-hmm. I'm listening to see if I can hear some inspiration, some wisdom, some advice. Um, mm-hmm. People say that's, you know, the still small voice of God. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that, sure. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. not all. It's just, <laughs> it's what I can tune into. And so mm-hmm. when I get an inspiration, it mm-hmm. behooves me to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And and the paying attention is to my mind what my religion is all about. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. it's like shut up and listen, Lois. Mm-hmm, you, know? mm-hmm. you talk all you want, but then listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like when I'm doing spiritual direction, people like I spend usually the first session or the first two or three sessions. Most of the questions I'm asking is figuring out or helping that person understand better how do they listen well. What helps them listen? And people often discount, I think, practices which enable them to listen. Like sometimes think that they're not meditating on a cushion or they're not sitting and meeting for work. They're like, but how do I listen? Like they don't, they don't realize that sometimes for some people, like, you know, chopping vegetables for dinner for their family every day, that's actually a moment when they can receive like a lot of spiritual direction from the spirit, you know, like, or where sometimes for some people it's in the garden or it's by the ocean or it's, you know, playing with their, um, you know, taking their dog or to caring for others. Like there's so many ways of listening. Mm-hmm. Um, and for and, some, for some people, mm-hmm. they, they need to figure out some action, action, ritual, mm-hmm. procedure, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. some way that they can identify as, well, now I'm going to listen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And yeah. and for other people, they don't have to do that. They just mm-hmm. can just listen anyway. And for yet other people, they'll never listen no matter what they do. <laughs> I always like to hold out hope that they that you know, that people will have will be able to find ways. And there's so many like that's part of I think the magic or the the power or the beauty of all the different spiritual traditions out there is both for listening and for aligning, for for right, for clearing out. For there's so many mm-hmm. practices to help us release and submit, and um, you know, to 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 
to get rid of our egos or to, to, to try to step out of the way for a little while um, and to try to let something else work through us. One of the joys of Quaker meeting is that even if you're in a place where right then, whether you're hurting or you're whatever's happening in your life and you can't listen, if you go and you sit in a Quaker meeting, odds are real high that God will be able to get through to somebody else in that meeting mm. and they'll stand up and say what you need to hear. Mm-hmm. And and I, and I firmly believe that that happens. I know that occasionally I'll get a message and sometimes it'll answer my own question. Sometimes it feels like I'm supposed to stand up and say it. And sometimes I haven't got a clue what it means, but I'm supposed to stand up and say it. And when I do, Someone after meeting will come and say, thank you. Mm-hmm. I needed to hear that. And mm-hmm. that, that's one of the reasons that I do believe that, that people can hear the divine, that people can get inspiration. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that experience. Of, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that those are the experiences that so those are amongst the experiences that so deeply formed me. And so now, like, you know, when I work with groups of people who are leaning upon things other than silence, like leaning upon ritual, leaning upon music, leaning upon um, fire and the elements and air and water. And chopping vegetables. And chopping vegetables. It's like, when when working with those circles of people, some of whom define as coven, some of whom don't, it's that capacity to trust that the spirit will move through the group and that whether I'm the leader or the participant, it doesn't matter what my official role is. The spirit will talk to those people. And I trust the spirit to say what needs to be said and it might not be through me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like that trust is something, that trust in the, the power of the spirit to speak through the group, to speak through the community. And it's one of the reasons why spiritual paths need to be collective and why the work of sustainability to the extent to which that is work that takes us back to a spiritual center, it has to be done in community. And, you know, whether you're, whether you're, you know, part of a Catholic community or part of, um, you know, a coven, it's like, your capacity to work as a group to hear and listen to and follow the spirit uh, like can be strong and is part of what can help might be able to help us get through some of this mess. Mm-hmm. And we, we all have that. We all have that capacity. We do. Um, and we can include, hopefully we can include, you know, the more than human world, the animate world in that circle of listening Mm -hmm. Um, and to, to, that we can. So for example, for this workshop I'll be doing at Quaker center, I'm very excited about, we're going to have meeting for worship under the full moon in the Redwood circle. Um, And it's like, I'm looking forward to like being able to kind of call upon these multiple dimensions of who we are to evoke something and to see where does the moon and the trees, to know that they are part of that circle. Yeah. You know, they are part of our circle as humans and we are part of their circle that they have already, 
they are already standing there and we get to be a part of their circle. Yeah. I think that that's one of the drawbacks weaknesses mm. of many Quaker meetings is that um, their strength is only with other humans. Mm. And uh, I'm very lucky. I live in Davis and on my property in my, in my little house, there are six redwood trees and mm. I used to do massage and boy, you get the best massage vibes when you're out in the middle of a circle of redwood trees. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So are you coming back to, uh, to live in California or are you permanent where you are now or what? Um, you know, I'm here for the next year or two, um, for sure. Um, my partners and I are here, um, and it's a wonderful place to be. And I do miss California greatly. Um, so right now I'm based here and I travel to California frequently mm -hmm. and yeah. And what's your, on, on your property or next to where you live, what are the trees around you? What kind of trees are mm -hmm. there? Um, so we have two Norwegian maples, which are not native to this land. And we're consistently making sure we don't have any more Norwegian <laughs> maples. Um, and they're wonderful. I work with them a lot. I work with these. One of them has my, I have an altar at the base of one of them. Um, and the other one has, um, it has a hammock <laughs> in it right now. And so those are, and we have several other trees as well, but those are kind of the two that we, that we kind of give the most attention to. Um, we are right next to the river that runs both ways, uh, which is a traditional name of the, of the, um, the Hudson River uh, that goes uh, from the ocean all the way, all the way up for many, many, many miles up to Albany. So why is it called both ways? The river that runs both ways um, is called that sometimes. Yeah. this a couple of different translations of that um, because the water, the salt water is brackish. The salt water travels up the river all, all the way to Albany, which is, I don't remember how many miles, but it's like a good three hour drive. Um, and it is a mixture of salt and fresh current throughout the entirety of that river. Um, and so it has a, it has that brackish ecosystem. And so the fish and birds that live there are kind of unique because you can have both fresh water and, and salt water mixing together. And, and it's quite a, a substantial river. Um, I haven't, I, it's, it's interesting. I actually know this river right now better than some of the California rivers. I know the Pacific ocean, but I don't, but this river is a very strong, powerful river, uh, that has, has many, 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 many stories, uh, attached uh, around it. And we're part of a project to bring back, to try to bring back some of the Mohican, Mohican people, um, who are the traditional stewards of this river. And they, they tell stories that their names of who they are as a people is complete is all about this particular river mm -hmm. um even even yeah they they're they're their particular peoples go up into the mountains um in the berkshire mountains mm -hmm. it's a very different ecosystem than california but the hudson valley I, I sometimes compare it to marin it has that kind of rolling hills and um lots of small farms and and lots of local cheese 
<laughs> oh, the cheese. Yes. The yeah, cheese. it's really Oh. like where you're going to find good cheese is a really important like qualifier for a living. <laughs> well, I, I thank you, Sarah. And would you tell us again your name and how Yeah. people can reach you? Absolutely. You know, so I, uh, my name is um, Reverend Sarah Jelena Wolcott. I um, am, I, as I said, I, I do healing work. I do spiritual direction. I do teach a lot of courses online and offer retreats in person um, around both decolonizing uh, and the intersections of climate change and eco-spirituality. And increasingly these questions of of magic and witchiness, which is um, quite fun and quite a delight to be engaging more in. Um, but, you know, most of the people who are coming to me these days are coming to me to, to go deeper into um, creating new institutions, um, taking serious action in their own personal and professional lives to create change. Um, well, and from different, different parts of, of different sectors and different parts of society in that, um, you can find more about me at www.sarajolina.com, S-A-R-A-J-O-L-E-N-A.com. And also my kind of main courses, most of my courses are offered through Sequoia Samanvaya, uh, which is We'll, a long. we'll uh, not worry about spelling that on the <laughs> radio because uh, okay. I'll, I'll It's such put a it long in the name. description. If people go to kdrt.org and they look up this show, the description will have that URL in it. But, Yeah, but folks, yeah. Sarah Jolina is what you want to look for. All right. Yeah, sarahjolina.com is my kind of personal website. Um, and And we try I'm sure to, you have a link there to all the other stuff. I do. I have, I try to make sure things are linked. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I want to uh, invite our listeners to come back again. My name is Lois Richter. The program is That's Life. You've been listening to KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California. And my guest today is Sarah Jolena, who presently lives in New York, but is actually from around here. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you.